This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... The 68 Democratic Convention Gone Delta Green. Steve Hammond. The 43 Group. And A Great Old Black Hole. When Bobby would yell for seconds on fish and thirds, his mother said his big mouth would give him brain fever like his cousin Larry Marsh, and how would he like that? And Bobby said just fine, and his mother sent him to his room without any fish at all. Thus begins the strangely familiar, yet disturbingly alien, illustrated tale, Where the Deep Ones Are. It's part of Atlas Games' mini-mythos series, which also includes the delightful parodies, Cliff Howard, The Big Red God. Good Night Azathoth, and the Antarctic Express. All of them written by yours truly. Right now, and for a limited time, Atlas is offering a buy-two, get-one-free bundle of mini-mythos goodness. Which makes delightfully subversive gifts for friends, relatives, and especially their children. Leap online, Mythos fans. Point your browsers to atlas-games.com slash Cthulhu4kids. That's Cthulhu, the number four, and the word kids. Or follow the link in the show notes. That seems wise. The clatter of dice, the crunch of miniatures, the uh, exciting aroma of uh, 1960s potato chips, which I guess in the U.S. means that the flavors are salted and not salted. No, just salted. <laughs> That's all you're going to get. They're just potato chips. They don't have flavors yet. It's 1968 uh, because uh, we're going to look at ways for uh, the uh, Democratic National Convention of 1968 to form the uh, backdrop for a fall of Delta Green scenario. And uh, guess what? We have an expert with us on both fall of Delta Green and terrible things that happened in Chicago. And that's, of course, my co-podcaster, uh, Kenneth Height. So, uh, Ken, before we get on to inserting Delta Green and the mythos into the 68 convention, I guess we should give some uh, background on this. This was one of the events uh, happening in uh, the late 60s that made uh, people think that America was uh, coming apart at the seams. Uh, this <laughs> involves the, the great Daly dynasty. Mayor uh, Richard Daly wanted to make sure that none of the anti-war protesters uh, who were uh, coming to town to protest the war, which of course had been the Vietnam War, of course, was started uh, by uh, presidents of the, the Democratic Party. And although there was an anti-war movement within the Democratic uh, Party, it was not uh, set to win in 1968. No, it was not. Uh, uh, Eugene McCarthy, God bless him, uh, ran as the anti-war candidate. And uh, between most Americans and you know, most Democrats being still hawks and his own sort of uh, gormless, uh, feckless affect and the hard work of machine politics bosses like our own Richard Daly. Uh, he was not going to win. He was going to get thumped at the convention. The chance for the possible uh, upset was uh, Robert Kennedy, who was running and at least making noises about getting out of the war that his brother got us into. But he, of course, was sadly assassinated in June in uh, Los Angeles after winning the California primary. So all of his delegates were sort of thrown up for, for, for grabs. And so it was not the act of a crazy person to believe, as it would be now, that you could go to the Democratic National Convention and maybe stampede the delegates into, uh, especially the Kennedy delegates, into going the other direction, uh, joining with the pre-pledged McCarthy delegates and maybe upsetting Hubert Humphrey, the uh, anointed leader of the Democratic Party. So the uh, anti-war, uh, anti-establishment left uh, uh, decides to uh, show up in en masse to uh, protest and uh, Mayor Daly decides that he's not going to allow any of this hippie disorder uh, to he um, shall not to to mar Chicago, and uh, decides to uh, order his uh, uh, riot police to employ uh, aggressive measures. Uh, and then a big old police riot uh, breaks out, and uh, therefore uh, sending uh, fear 
and uh, and anxiety through uh, people of all political stripes in America. Yeah. After yes. after the Kennedy assassination, of course, that was already a, a, a sign that things are going apart. If you are a young person in 1968, uh, remember, of course, that uh, in, in any young male is eligible to be drafted to go to Vietnam. So that everybody had a very personal stake in protesting that war. It wasn't a war of volunteerism and... Uh, uh, your personal stakes and the reason why you didn't want that war to, to go on were uh, very acute. And so into this great stew, a, a great ritual of American politics devolves uh, into violence on uh, live television. Uh, so that's the background yeah. part. Uh, I think, uh, as always, I think we feel that it's kind of lame to go, and it was all caused by Yagalanak. So, right. And it was the, that jerk Yagalanak hating the Vietnam War caused the riot. <laughs> yeah. That um, doesn't sound like Yagalanak now that It I, doesn't really. Now that I think and about even, it. um, uh, looking for bad guys behind the police riot, uh, how about Mayor Daly? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's, he makes a perfectly legitimate cause of the police riot. And of course, his classic quote, the police are not here to create disorder. The police are here to preserve disorder. <laughs> Yes, more a sign that history is actually all written by Terry Southern. Yeah. But uh, there's certainly uh, plenty of uh, horror and everything going on in the background. Uh, the uh, If you want to see something that uses the uh, Democratic Convention as the backdrop to a quite different piece of art, uh, check out the film Medium Cool by uh, the uh, usual cinematographer, but in this case director uh, Haskell Wexler, who is a sort of slice-of-life slice drama about a uh, reporter played by Robert Forster, uh, and it uh, was is filmed verite style during the actual event, and uses that as and so that's a great source of, of atmosphere. But what are what is the occult thing, Ken, that is also going on that also brings Delta Green agents to town at the same time? everything is uh, uh, going haywire around the convention center. Well, I, I think you can go a, a couple of different directions. And I should, at this juncture, mention that uh, beloved uh, Trail of Cthulhu uh, writer Bill White has a scenario called All Along the Watchtower that takes place in the 1968 convention. And I won't give it away, but the player characters in Bill's inimitable fashion are Hunter S. Thompson, uh, Robin Morgan, uh, the uh, pioneering uh, feminist activist, uh, Todd Gitlin, leader of the SDS, Students for Democratic Society, Jimi Hendrix, uh, Hillary Rodham, young political activist, and a fellow named E. Gary Gygax, who's just in town talking to publishers by accident and gets in trouble. So the um, so what's uh, the second best way to do a Cthulhu scenario? So <laughs> failing, failing getting uh, Bill White to run uh, all along the Watchtower for you, or failing Pelgrane Publishing all along the Watchtower, the second best way, I think, is uh, uh, to sort of start it not with, oh, there's coincidentally a, a, a haunted mummy at the Field Museum that Delta Green is here to kill, and oh, look, the, there's a riot that's distracting them. I think you make the riot part of the thing, but the riot is not caused by anything other than police brutality, but Majestic, uh, which is around, you know, uh, doing their own experiments in Chicago at the University of Chicago uh, with uh, a biological mind control or something. They think, what a great chance to test out this new system. Uh, and they use some sort of mythos-derived drug, either to drug the protesters and create a mythos rip uh, in the course of the, of the protest, or they are attempting to help the police calm things down by spraying their experimental spray on the protesters. And of course, it's sort of works and that they all drop unconscious, but it also doesn't work because their brains are sent into the dreamlands and they start funneling the dark men of Sarkamand into Chicago and trouble ensues that way. So I think that what you have uh, for this to be a proper fall of Delta Green adventure is that some other arm of the federal government, uh, Majestic in this case, has ruined things and you have to sort of try to unruin things. And that gives you that uh, blue on blue warfare aspect that uh, the 68 convention sort of had in that there's, you know, possibly the most powerful Democrat in the country, uh, barring the president. Um, and, and actually in summer of 68, more powerful than the president because Johnson couldn't get anything done. But Mayor Daley 
doing everything he could to preserve the image of the Democratic Party in Chicago manages uh, to elect Richard Nixon because that that scene where everyone's saying the whole world is watching, the whole world is watching, uh, lots of other people said, well, if this is how Democrats run their own convention in their own city, God forbid they should be in charge of the country. Even Nixon is better than that. And so when he squeaks in over Hubert Humphrey, that, that's a lot of why. So I think the sort of self-own uh, destructive activity uh, a larger theme of the 68 convention. It, it, it works if there's another majestic team that's also caused problems. And so the fall of Delta green guys can address the symptoms. They can hunt down dark men or, or stop uh, destructive dreamers or whatever the, the gas does or the, or the acid, or they can try and get at the root by leaning on the majestic team and getting someone who is maybe a little less, um, uh, uh, pure, uh, uh, NRO Delta to sort of say, Oh yeah, we thought this was a great idea. Is it not working? And then, you know, break it open from that side. And that way you have, you keep it a human problem in a, uh, in a, in a human scenario. So it's not just, uh, we're having a mummy hunt and also there's a fun riot, uh, which, you know, you could have a mummy hunt and a fun riot and I don't say don't do it, but the 68 seems to be sort of so iconically an example of a self-owned screw up that maybe make the scenario that too. Right. So, uh, listeners, you will, you will have noted uh, what Ken did there, which is you, uh, take the historical event, uh, that you want to use as the, uh, background of your supernatural scenario that is not caused by the, supernatural but somehow relates to it you know what is the theme what is the motif of this historical event and the uh, theme uh it turns out to be hubris about uh destroying uh, that which you uh, seek to protect uh, by uh trying to do so in an arrogant and heavy-handed manner and then you take that and you transplant the theme into something that works in your uh, chosen setting and genre and so in this case the poster boys for uh, that sort of uh, arrogance and hubris that uh, destroys that which they seek to protect, of course, in, in this case would be Majestic 12, and so or Majestic, and then you just uh, uh, go ahead and uh, create a story that then uh, parallels it. So once you start breaking them down into scenes, how do you make sure that the uh, convention occurs on stage rather than just uh, periodically uh, playing little snippets of Walter Cronkite as audio files for for the players, or is is that enough? I mean, I think this is going to depend on how one what exactly you want to do. But the way you make the convention happen on stage is that the majestic guy who's in charge of the program is part of the convention. He's you know in the government. He's a government agent. He he's working security. Um, he his FBI cover means that he's working uh, COINTELPRO and infiltrating uh, protest movements. Or maybe he's in the Secret Service and he's actually guarding uh, Hubert Humphrey or or uh, Gene McCarthy or George McGovern or somebody like that. And so he's going in and out of the convention. And so if you want to get this guy, you yourself have to get in and out of the convention using your own uh, uh, government cover or using your own smarts. And you can draw it in and maybe you can set up a situation where the Delta Green briefing is very, very explicit that uh, Ted Kennedy is not to be informed of any of this. That if it, you, you, you're, you, you should die rather than let Ted Kennedy see evidence of the occult. And they're like, why? And I said, you don't have to know. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and so that adds the sort of, you know, field where, you know, oh, look, Ted Kennedy's coming out to address the protesters and try and calm everybody. It's like, oh my God, now we have to do this other thing. And so you can, you can involve various personalities within the movement. Uh, either the student movement or the um, democratic uh, orthodoxy uh, and say that they have responses to this. So if, if a bunch of people are, are fainting mysteriously and having weird side effects, maybe Abby Hoffman is there and he, and he knows enough magicians that he thinks, Oh, the, the, the pigs are using curses on us. And uh, so he's running around spreading occult rumors and you have to go talk Abby Hoffman down out of, breaking um uh, the 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 veil there and uh, and revealing the truth but also maybe Abby's got some leads maybe his own drug use has given him sort of inspired insights into what's going on and so if you can get on Abby's level um uh, which is weird because you're probably a bunch of squares being uh, delta green but if you can somehow get in touch with Abby, maybe Abby can sort of be your, your shaman that leads you into this, uh, into Sarkaman and you can stop things in the, in the dreamlands if that's what you want to do. Right. Well, th- that's why every Delta green team needs like the one guy played by Donald Sutherland. Who's gone. Right. Culture. They need the hippie. Been, yes. You need your, your Hoffman whisperer to go and, uh, 
right. seem trustworthy to Abby Hoffman. Yeah, and then you can you can play it any number of ways. So the thing to do, as always, is you do the reading about the uh, uh, or the watching about the convention, and you say, ah. I'm personally fascinated by Fred Hampton of the Black Panthers. I wonder what his response to all this is. And you make him an NPC and a core to the story based on the fact that what you really want to do is portray Fred Hampton or talk about Fred Hampton or involve the Black Panthers in in, in this operation. Um, and if you're like, I do not want to involve the Black Panthers, then maybe you go a different way. Maybe it's it's all hippies or maybe it's all the Secret Service and you um, uh, dig around and look into a politician that you want to particularly uh, pillory or um, uh, unpillory, depending. And in fact, you may come across uh, Haskell Wexler shooting some exterior scenes with uh, Robert Forster and uh, something gets caught on film. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to see caught on film. And so... Uh, you can, uh, I mean, the whole world is watching, as they say, and they'd better not see uh, anyone summoning a demon. Exactly. Uh, well, I think that uh, provides a, a lot of guidance for anyone who wants to uh, take that classic event and uh, put it through the lens of Fall of Delta Green. So uh, the whole world uh, perhaps uh, isn't watching us, but uh, if they're listening to us, world, be assured that there's another segment waiting on the other side of this here commercial. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Height, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning Gumshoe Engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe. What are you waiting for? The end of the world? So, hey, we're here uh, with another installment of Ken and or Robin talk to somebody else. And in this case, it's both Ken and Robin talking to Stephen Hammond, uh, app maker extraordinaire, uh, maker of many Robin Laws related apps. The finest apps. The finest apps, indeed. Uh, so uh, among your among your many apps uh, are uh, Sylvan Master, which is a mm-hmm. play aid for uh, Feng Shui, uh, Story Beats, uh, which is the uh, mapping narrative mapping tool that goes with Hamlet's hit points and uh, beating the story. And uh, as we speak, it is still up for an Any Award. It is. Right, at this moment. Yes. Uh, but when you're listening to this, you will be able to look up listeners, whether it won or not, and it's in a category full of really great things that have nothing at all to do with each other. Right. So it's impossible to guess what will happen there. And you're also... Uh, Working on an unreleased new exciting Robin and Ken related app. Hello. Hello. Uh, Black Books. So, how did you uh, get into the Robin Laws related app business? I was a fan of Feng Shui first edition many, many years ago. And uh, when I heard the second edition was coming out, I immediately hopped on the Kickstarter and, and saw there was this new idea of rolling, pre rolling all of your, your MOOCs. Hits and I'm like, well, gee, that sounds really boring. I thought I could write a thing and put it on my blog that just did that and gave you a PDF. So I did that, and that got the attention of uh, Hal and you, and we talked about building an app, uh, a GM tool for it, and uh, uh, went from there. So uh, I think there are probably a lot of uh, not just uh, tabletop role-playing game designers, but also GMs and players who want 
an app as awesome and useful and speeding up play oriented uh, as the Feng Shui app uh, is for Feng Shui for their game, uh, how difficult and expensive uh, is it to uh, make an iOS app? It's pretty difficult to make an iOS app. It's, uh, you know, if you've got a lot that of was, users... That was my hope. <laughs> if it was easy, that really would have crushed me. I'm glad that it's hard. Um, it takes a um, some experience and, and UI design, and, and there's lots of roles that go into it. Uh, You're I, literally I, one of the seven men alive who can do it. I, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> and the other six are dead. The other six are dead. Um, I wish they were. Uh, so, sort of the hard thing about it's the economics around it because if you make an iOS app and you want to make and you can't sell it on Android and the code bases just do not share anything today so you've right. got to build it all over again it's like they planned it that way mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, toolkits are coming and they're getting close to where you can get a mobile app experience that crosses both platforms but they still aren't quite there and it's going to be, I mean, even if you do have it, it's going to, one of them or the other, the one that's not built in natively is probably still going to suffer a little bit, or is it going to be seamless? I don't, the vision that I have is it'll be like the, the graphics engines for video games and stuff, right. uh, Unity or Frostbite or whatever, where, where the experience is, is very comparable between the things. Well, I have a lot of visions that also aren't going to come true anytime soon. I mean, is this, is this something, because obviously every third party supplier wants this because they don't want to do to work twice again. I mean, regardless. Right. And that's not a negligible factor. But Apple is a trillion-dollar company that hates everybody. So aren't they going to be like, all right, we've got the emulator, and then they're going to like take a left turn in the OS, and everyone has to go back to the drawing board? If they wanted this to have happened, I guess is my question, such as it is, wouldn't it have happened 10, 15 years ago when phones first started coming out? Uh you would think that it would have, yeah. yes. And that's why my theory is that they don't want it, as Robin perhaps alluded to. <laughs> no, they they don't, but if you look back at, at the old console days, none of the console makers wanted it. Right. And and it happened anyway. Uh, simply the economics for game developers of, I want to build games right. that, that cross both platforms. So at some point, content is king. Right. 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 Well, and, there, and Apple has not squashed a couple of technologies that are out there yet. They just aren't, it's still not quite as good as, as a native experience. Right. Um, so when it is as good, will they crush it? We'll have to wait and see. Right. Well, if it's that good, then one assumes there will be a bandwagon effect and all the really big app people will come on and say, we're building our new app in this and stop it. <laughs> right? I mean, that's the goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do you, um, when you, when you're building something like this for a, for a, a, uh, what do I want to say? A, an elevated, uh, select audience. Is, is this basically a labor of love for you and, you're basically making it for um, uh, for for beer money, uh, or is there an actual market that exists for a a narrow casted app? Is it such a super long tail that the uh, thousand people who want it really want it, and if each of them, you know, then, then that would pay you back? Is that a, is it a viable model for someone? They just have to be thinking like a craftsman, or is it a you're doing it because you're a wonderful human being and a humanitarian? Both can be true. <laughs> yes. Um, it is a viable model if you are happy living in game industry sorts of economics. Right. I think. So it's viable in theory then for the game industry because we are, are self-selected to be happy with this. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. You, you, you know, you're not going to make the money selling this app that you are. Right. You know, anywhere else in software development. Mm-hmm. And, uh, an app like this that is meant, uh, certainly the Feng Shui app and, uh, 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 other apps are meant for the home table, not necessarily for online, you know, Roll20 type play, or is there a crossover that's coming? So or is the crossover already there and I'm an idiot? Which No, the, the, the crossover's not there. The integration between a lot of the tools that exist is is really just not, not there today. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Almost everybody offers some sort of API, but they don't really talk to each other and... Um, and because there's no big dog in the business to force content unification, we're still back in the old console days, basically. Right. right? right. Now, Black Book is going to have uh, a set of GM's tools. So the the gumshoe right. uh, char- character matrix that you have. Mm-hmm. So it will have that live. So as your players burn points, you can see their points count down and, mm-hmm. and highlight who's spent points recently. So you can sort of see how spotlight's being shared across the table, and that would work just fine, you know, remote. Right. And so uh, Black Book, if we didn't mention it already, is the new 
character generator plus plus for uh, Gumshoe. Uh, there was a previous existing one, and you're, uh, you started from ground zero to build yep. a new state-of-the-art uh, fabulous one. And, and that's a web app, I take it? Yes. Um, and so, uh, and that is uh, as easy to use on an iPad as it is on a laptop, I assume. It is. It is. It, it works on a phone, too. I don't know if the GM tools will work on a phone. They need a little more screen real estate, I think. But the character tool is just fine on the phone. And uh, so what were your challenges in uh, taking, because this is a, a bigger bite, I think, than the Feng Shui one, because the Feng Shui one was, is just a combat uh, manager. Right. And this is taking character generation from a bunch of uh, similar but slightly unrelated, you know, slightly variant games. What were the design challenges of making a new black book that is uh, uh, beautiful and, and works well? So the design challenges around character creation itself and sort of management uh, sort of boiled down to were largely how you're going to structure the data underneath so that you know, rolling out a new game is as easy as possible. Um, and uh, so far, we've got uh, Trail and Knights Black Agents work. Uh, Fall of Delta Green is coming, and I'm sort of hoping that covers most of the bases for how you pick things and spend points. You get bonus points or uh, half price or, right. or sort of whatever. And I think once we have that ground covered, we should be able to roll out the rest of the games relatively quickly. From a user interface perspective, to make it pretty um, and, and engaging... Uh, I brought in a designer friend of mine and uh, we worked a long time sort of on colors and palettes because we want sort of the character sheet for each game to be visually distinct. Right. Pulling from the fonts from the book and the colors, but they have to work together so that, you know, the whole thing fits. And uh, we spent a lot of time trying to trying to make that work. Um, and uh, Storybeats is the... Uh, and you find it at Storybeats.io is the... Uh, app that allows people to take the theory that you find in Hamlet's Hit Points, which is about mapping the narrative structures of games, or beating the story, which is about any narrative, um, and, and put them into practice. Because uh, before that, people looked at Hamlet's Hit Points uh, and said, oh, well, that's really cool, but it also seems kind of onerous. And for me, even generating those uh, beats uh, you know, was a laborious process of doing it in campaign cartographer with uh, with symbols. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, uh, it uh, I can attest, having outlined a novel using the tool, uh, that it you know works like a dream. It's you know it's uh, really easy to change and to rewrite. And if you notice midway through your novel that you're oh no wait that beat needs to go over there, he goes and it's super easy to do. Um, and this started out as basically a uh, a contest exercise with a bunch of people where uh, you decided that you had some costumes in a barn and wanted to make a narrative mapping uh, software. So tell us a bit about that process. Uh, sure. So uh, there's a uh, uh, mostly annual uh, programming contest for Ruby programmers, um, uh, Ruby Rampage, and I've pretty much entered every one of them going way back to 2007 or something. Uh, but this year, uh, myself and, and the people I, I my team... Uh, we're, we're casting about for a project and put a few on the table and everybody sort of uh, bought into this one as, as being both challenging uh, and something a lot of people would, would understand, a writing tool. It's, it's not hard to get, which is key when in the sort of voting process that content uses. Uh, and uh, uh, we built it and it came out better than, uh, better than we even thought it would. It took fifth out of 300 in that contest. Uh, and as we said earlier, it's up for an any now. So, Yeah, the, the highest honor for any app, I feel. I think so. Yeah. So uh, do you have uh, sort of a dream plan for, can you see like five years ago, or sorry, five <laughs> years from now, if you can see into the past, yes. um, if, if uh, is there sort of a an integration of tabletop gaming and... Apps that you uh, that hasn't been achieved yet that you uh, that you want to see is there a direction things are headed in? Yes, I, I think so. I, I think pretty much everybody writing software in the industry recognizes that that we need to figure out the integration puzzle, and um, uh, which means we also need to figure out sort of the security puzzle, right? Because one of roll twenties to pull something out of a hat, they limit connections to outside services, so you couldn't connect 
your roll 20 tabletop to the black book uh, to pull in characters from there. And they do that for security reasons because, you know, who knows who I am and, and right. what yeah. my app's going to do to everybody's computer who's playing it. Mm-hmm. And, and also for platform control reasons, right? The Facebook wants you to stay on Facebook as much as you possibly can, which yep. is why it's hard to link out from an article on Facebook. And so presumably Roll20, which is, you know, they want to keep you on Roll20. Right. But I I, I, I think there's economics and um, uh, a lot to be gained by making things work together. Um, and and letting people engage and play more and, and just use these tools, uh, particularly as, as we're competing with sort of video games and, and things like that where, you know, character creation super easy. You, you know, 10 minutes with your controller and you're well, done. The hard part is picking your beard style. Right, yeah. exactly. Um, yeah, I've certainly, you know, worked on at least one project that, you know, like many uh, projects in the electronic realm, you know, remained in the concept stage about... You know the the thing that can be the rule set that's actually an app that is uh, because of course the dream there is that uh, you can make the implementation of the rules very complex while still being transparent so that people know what's going on. But you know you're limited to simple math, for example, in a tabletop game that people can do. Whereas uh, in if, if you had a resolution system that was uh, done on your iPad or on a web app or or whatever it was that. You could do something that is very complicated under the hood and takes a lot of different factors into account, and the management cost for the GM is essentially zero. That it feels like a right. a, a video game to them, even though it's a complicated tabletop game under under the hood. Um, but there's also a point where there's a, a resistance uh, that people feel to having the tactile experience of the tabletop taken and made electronic. Um, and so is there, do you, have you faced sort of resistance from people? It's like, well, I'd rather just continue rolling 7,000 dice for, for all of the MOOCs, or, or do you hear back about that? Not so much on, on the rolling, rolling dice, but early feedback for the Black Book from a lot of people was they didn't really want to use the, the play mode we're using in a play. They wanted to make a character and print it and have a piece of paper at the right. tabletop. Uh, and, and what is the play mode? How does that work? So basically, play mode, um, edit mode lets you lets you create the character and assign points, and then you switch to play mode. And when you tap an ability, it'll ask you you want to spend one point or two if it's investigative or more if it's um, general. general. Thank you. Uh, spend it, it keeps track. You can refresh an individual ability, or you can refresh all the abilities. Health and sanity and stability are, are all tracked and just sort of you know real time as you play instead of having to mark them off on the piece of paper. Uh, and doing it that way lets us do things like filter down to only the abilities that you have, right? One of the things we did back at the very start of this project was ask people to send us your used character sheets so that we can see what you were customizing, what right, you were yeah. overusing, and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And the feedback there was sort of overwhelmingly... The thing people changed most was they did not like the grid of sanity, health, and stability erasing and checking those, right? Right, yeah. Um, the custom sheets we saw all basically had a big number for that. Uh, so we can do that. And the other thing that they changed was was the list of abilities because it was hard to find yours down these big lists. So we can add a... You click a button, and now we just show you the abilities that you have. Right, they sort of... Uh, all the other ones ghost out or gray out or whatever. Exactly. It sounds like... Um, I, I think of the Gumshoe games... The one with sort of, and it's not a heavy cognitive load by any stretch of the imagination. These kids today, if they played Rollmaster, they'd know about heavy cognitive load. <laughs> but uh, Bubble Gumshoe, which I designed with Emily Careboss and Lisa Steele, has uh, relationships that you're keeping track of in play as well as a source of points. And looking at the thing, it's fairly simple, and thinking about the relationships is something you ought to be doing in game anyway. But I could see it being a little more of a track than just investigative general. It's like investigative general, oh, and I've got, you know, the woman who teaches PE, you know, what, what can she do for me? And uh, have you, uh, are you thinking that uh, Gumshoe is, is just going to be your, your never-ending stream and you'll go from uh, flower to flower forever, or is it uh, the publisher needs to come to you, in which case, uh, Fred, come to Steve. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um... 
I hadn't put that much thought into sort of what comes next. I'm trying to get get Gumshoe out, and, and again, everything right. in the space is a learning experience. Mm-hmm. So we'll see how it does. And it. you'll be just ready for speaking of uh, cognitive loads, and this is much more in the creation as opposed to the play. Although play is also a little heavy uh, with Mutant City Blues coming out with the second edition. That's one where the character creation is a an adventure, <laughs> right? Because yes. you're going up and down the Quaid diagram picking yeah. superpowers. And, and so that's another thing where I, I, I mean, again, I grew up in the old old school graph paper and pencils, but I look at it and I think, boy, if there was an app that would go through the Quaid diagram for me, that'd be kind of nice. Yep. Well, the, the the plan is to cover all the Gumshoe games. Fantastic. Published by Pelgrins and certainly Bubble Gumshoe. Uh, I'd love to take that one on. Fantastic. The, the visualization of, of doing the Quaid diagram where you're connecting the different powers mm-hmm. in the thing and they could light up that. Could yeah. Be a it, lot of fun. Just all kinds of fun you can have with Quaid. And then it, uh, there's a lot to keep track of with superpowers because that's sort of the core of your character. Uh, so if there are other uh, tabletop uh, publishers uh, listening to that who uh, want to get a hold of you uh, to have you do their new cool thing, how do they get a hold of you? Uh, at Shaman42 on Twitter and Shaman, S-H-A-M-M-O-N-D, at NorthPub.com is my email address. Uh, there's also contact forms on all the apps, so if you find you know the, the blackbook.io or storybeats.io, just use that contact form and reach out to me. And uh, we'll uh, be putting at least your Twitter handle and maybe your email in the uh, show notes. Right, Robin? Um, yes. So uh, anyway, thanks so much for uh, stopping by and telling us about this uh, weird shamanistic thing where you come down from the hills and create electronic apps. Yes, and not pointing and laughing when I said app out of my mouth like I knew what I was talking about. <laughs> It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, guys. when demons lodge in your memories. Well, there are seven different sorts of demons, each of which has a different mnemonic effect. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. RunePunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix, Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Keep this podcast on the ticket alongside such Patreon backers as... Fred Kish. John Kingdon. Pedro Garcia. Stephen Hammond. Plus Will Ferguson and Fifi Payat. The retinal scan and background check that you had to undergo in order to listen to this segment probably has tipped you off the fact that you are now in the top secret environs of the Tradecraft Hut. And this time around, Patreon backer Miscellaneous Musings, a uh, well-hidden uh, name there, They're always a good uh, tip if you're uh, submitting questions to the Tradecraft Hut. there of the Cotswolds Musings. Yes. Asks, how would you work the 43 group into a Delta Green or Knight's Black Agents game. Uh, so the 43 group are a group of uh, British anti-fascist ex-servicemen who, after World War II, uh, decided that they uh, had uh, beaten the fascists in Europe and looked around in Britain and went, hey, wait a minute, uh, you would think that our local fascists would be chastened. But no, they think they have an opportunity. So this group of people got together to uh, counter their efforts and uh, before I turn it over to you, I'm just going to list the player characters that you play 
uh, straight from the Wikipedia page. I think on the Wikipedia page it says, here's your player characters. Yeah, it's in the player characters section that most of the really good Wikipedia pages exactly. have. Uh, so the 43 group, I think I've left out the key point that uh, they were primarily but not exclusively Jewish. Um, so your uh, player characters are Morris Beckman, uh, who has a Merchant Navy background. Uh, Gerald Flamberg, who's a middleweight boxing champion who fought in Operation Market Garden and was uh, decorated there. Leonard Sherman, a martial arts expert and member of the Welsh Guards. Uh, Alec Carson, who flew Hawker Hurricanes in the Battle of Britain. And Vidal Sassoon. <laughs> so, uh, now I understand there's a, uh, apparently there is, there is or was in development a, uh, a British miniseries about this group. And I guess they all have to like, uh, uh, research up or create a, uh, uh, a, uh, a woman character or two to be in the team and, you know, maybe somebody of Jamaican ancestry, but that's a pretty darn good stack of character sheets uh, right there, I gotta say. I mean, when you, when you begin with, um, uh, a, a, a merchant navy sailor and end with Vidal Sassoon, you are certainly telling a fun story. Vidal Sassoon at this time is a teenager. He's not the, avuncular white-haired uh, hairdresser that he became later on. But um, in the show, he's their makeup and disguise expert. In the ma- in the show, yeah. he's their makeup and disguise expert. Uh, and also, um, uh, it was not was not tired of fighting fascists yet. Uh, in the 43 group, he went and fought, um, uh, and fought for Israel in, uh, the, uh, Arab Israel, the first batch of Arab Israeli wars. So, uh, Vidal Sassoon, an appetite for beating people up, uh, as well as for, uh, making them look fabulous. So, uh, uh, lots of other, uh, veterans who'd been decorated for bravery, uh, veterans who had sort of seen the elephant close up and, as you say, said, why is Oswald Mosley still allowed to give speeches? Didn't we literally just have a war about that? And someone said, well, the allowing is the, what the war was for, but it's Oswald Mosley. So their, uh, their big, uh, sort of, uh, approach is they would, uh, infiltrate, they, they'd send, uh, less, um, well-known members of the 43 group out, uh, to infiltrate. And again, these guys do not have any sort of notion of operational security, uh, fascist meetings in Britain. And they would find out when the speakers are going to come up and do a big rally. And then they would bring a bunch of their 43 group friends who, because they were all ex-military with, uh, close combat training would form into a flying wedge charge the stage, knock over the speaker, and bust up the rally that way. Uh, a, a deplatforming of the deed, if you will. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they were on the platform, and then they were off the platform. And then they were off the platform. They were called the 43 Group, by the way, not because they enjoyed uh, uh, the Spanish liqueur, liqueur 43, but because there was 43 people in the room when they said, someone should go beat up Oswald Mosley's smug, stupid face. And uh, that's uh, where the name comes from. Eventually... Uh, they had, um, uh, several hundred members of people who thought that this was a, a jolly way to spend your weekend. The Orthodox Jewish organization sort of kept them at one, uh, at a remove because at the same time, uh, the Irgun is blowing up British, um, uh, interests in Palestine, fighting for, uh, Israeli independence. So they sort of said, maybe we don't want to be associated with homegrown violence, uh, since we're already dangerously associated with foreign violence. The, the but PR wisdom of Nazi punching was a hot topic uh, then as now. In the, in the 1950s, as well as it is now. Um, uh, although actually the, uh, uh, 1940s, I should say, because the, uh, 43 group basically ended in, um, uh, 1950 once, uh, the sort of fascists, uh, the union movement is, as, as they were called stood for office and were humiliated at the, at the ballot box. There which was platformed there as well. Yes. In, in fairness, pretty much what has happened to fascists, even in Germany. Um, uh, uh but, uh, you know, uh, it certainly happened in, in Britain. And so the, uh, uh, the, their jobs done, they dusted off their hands and went off, uh, to found, uh, um, uh, hairdressing empires or, uh, uh, pleasant retirement, however it is they wish to spend their time. Yeah, the, the, the union movement party, if you, if you look at the, the symbol of it, it's got a, a white lightning bolt, uh, in a blue circle on red, so he's not even trying to be subtle. Um, weirdly enough, uh, although Oswald Mosley is kind of a fascinating dude, in and of himself, but he was very much about, uh, Britain should join Europe 
in a strong, independent uh, a block that can uh, say uh, goodbye to America and Russia. If he came back, today's guys would kick him out. Yeah, exactly. He'd be a whole different kind of a fashion. There'd be a, a big argument. Um, at some point, he was involved with uh, Francis Parker Yaki, uh, the American uh, mystic and fascist who began, who uh, came of age too late to get involved in the actual war, but spent a uh, a great amount of time trying to create what he called the brown-red axis or the black-red axis between the fascist movement and uh, communism. And uh, uh, that, I think, was the thing that got uh, him tossed out of Mosley's movement, was his desire to say, look, the Soviets hate people, we hate people, let's get together and hate the same people. <laughs> Yeah, it was true in a broad metaphorical sense, but not on the operational level. Yeah, exactly. That's the trouble. And, and so the the union movement is trying to sort of build a cobble together a coalition uh, that can win at the polls. And having your speakers knocked off the platform all the time is is not good for the look. There's also other um, uh, sort of quasi uh, fascist groups. There's something called the British League of Ex Servicemen and Women, um, which was about pension rights. And was then also about anti-Semitism, because apparently if you don't watch a European political organization very carefully, that just slides in the back door. So the, um, the, the guy sort of, uh, Jeffrey Ham, who was a member of the, of this veterans organization was also a fascist and said, why don't I just turn this veterans organization into a fascist group? And so these were the guys who by and large would have been, I guess, the sort of Hydra to the 43 groups shield in that they also were ex-military and would probably have, uh, in fact, did know at least some rudiments of, of security and, and defense so that uh, sometimes these uh, flying wedges turned into actual brawls instead of a simple attack on some uh, jamoke uh, rattling on about the condition of Europe. So uh, in this episode, we've already talked about uh, putting Delta Green agents at the 68th Democratic Convention, and uh, this group disbands in 1950, which is long before fall of Delta Green and even longer before regular Delta Green. So let's, uh, let's look at Vamp Vampires and Dracula dossier and how uh, what uh, the, the vampiric undercurrent of this story. I mean, that's going to depend on where on what you believe Edom is up to at this time. And if in sort of the heroic mythology of Edom, this is the time when they're actually doing some good in the world. Because right. And Edom uh, is the uh, uh, fictional the fictional MI6 uh, uh, directorate that existed basically to resurrect Dracula and use him for British policy ends uh, with mixed generously results. Right. Uh, totally. Fictional. So just like real MI6. Yeah. And so the, uh, uh, the, the Edom directorate in this, in this time in its history is mostly just killing other vampires and protecting the realm against supernatural threats while it waits for the uh, earthquakes to come right. And uh, comes up with yet another dumb reason to bring Dracula into it. And so your question is, is Oswald Mosley, Part of Edom is he one of the Edom stalking horses who maybe one little uh, bananas? Is he a guy who Edom is worried about because they uh, like the uh, forty three group have just been overseas fighting Hitler and don't want uh, uh, homegrown ones any more than they wanted the other kind? Or uh, and and so are your Edom guys backing the forty three group and maybe there's a trained vampire killer who's in there as well looking for uh, uh, the rising of of the occult fascist movement, which of course was a big part of the fascist movement, not just in Germany, but also in Britain. And are they, um, is, is there some connection perhaps between, uh, the, uh, the, the, the Crowleyan magic, uh, practiced by, uh, the extreme British right wing, uh, before the war and these new bunch of fascists. And is that going to involve anyone in vampire activities or not? And if, even if, uh, there's nothing involved in the, the homegrown fascist movement with vampires, I can see Edom looking at that, stack of character sheets and going, hey, we have some uh, recruits here uh, who would be ideal to be uh, operating against uh, vampires. Is there something uh, uh, vampire-related in 1950 that can sort of be the uh, turning point between uh, uh, that explains why they, uh, in quotation marks, shut down operations and instead uh, become uh, covert Edom agents? There is not, uh, as far as I am aware, although I'm willing to, I'm eager, in fact, to be contradicted, uh, a vampire case right in 1950. But there is 
uh, a vampire case in Coventry Street in the West End in 1922, and there is the vampire of Highgate Cemetery that uh, began to be spotted in the late 1960s, which is more of your classic Fall of Delta Green era. So if you wanted to, you could be getting the gang back together. And so they were all punching Nazis in 1950. They went into their retirement, and now in their golden years, they're coming back out into action to fight the Highgate vampire in 1968. And that could be what you do with uh, uh, Pisces, which is the British version of Delta Green, could have been recruiting these guys, or it could be a, you know, Delta Green operation, and they don't trust Pisces because Pisces kept trying to kill them during the war. And so they're um, uh, operating with a false flag to recruit these guys to go after the Highgate vampire. Or it could be, as you suggest, Edom recruiting these guys as a false flag straight up as part of MI6 to uh, go after the Highgate vampire. Or you can take the Coventry Street vampire and the Highgate vampire and say, well, if you go from 1922 to 1968, down the middle, oh, look at that, late 1940s, that's vampire times. If you've got a like a 25-year vampire cycle, then, yeah, maybe the vampires are creeping around again in uh, the late 1940s. And that the reason we don't have those cases is because Edom mobilized their uh, assets within the 43 group to go and stomp out the infestation this time. They took care of it, it and they did a proper bailout uh, in keeping exactly. with their, uh, their vast experience in, in, the, in the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, on that note, I think we can uh, declare uh, that uh, question asked and answered and then peer into the uh, dim fog ahead that represents uh, whatever is on the other side of this upcoming commercial. Born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory. Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you play those agents. Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time. The long-whispered-of slipcase set has now shipped. This stunning edition includes two full-color rulebooks. The Any Award-winning Agent's Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear! Combat! Dossiers! The Handler's Guide for the game moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu Mythos. Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World and of eons pre-human. Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and source books. A universe of cosmic terror lurks just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it? The sparks arc between the prongs of the Jacob's Ladder. The Van de Graaff generator is out there generating Van de Graaffs. We got bubbling beakers. We got retorts. We've got angry people uh, writing in to say none of that is scientific at all because once more, we are playing fun with science. And here, in our uh, fun scientific Hot, but more fun than science, perhaps. <laughs> Not much more fun than science. Uh, yep, yep. On occasion, yes. But sometimes the fun and the science go hand in hand, as they do in this case, because Patreon backer Chris Sellers writes, Azathoth has been described as a malign force manifesting as the black hole at the center of the Milky Way galaxy. That's our galaxy for those following it along at home. We've learned that the black hole at the center of another galaxy, and I like the we there, that Chris uh, was part of the pioneering uh, astrophysical team. The black hole at the center of another galaxy, TXS 0506 plus 056, well, that, I can already tell that this black hole is mad because it has a dumb name, is aimed at Earth and is shooting neutrinos at Antarctica. Is this another rival mad god? And if so, what horrifying goal does this further? Uh, Robin, what have you got for us on black holes and or horrifying goals. Right. So, uh, to start the fun ruining, it <laughs> appears that this TXS, uh, Texas, let's call it Texas. Let's call it Texas. It's a, it's a black hole with a heart as big as Texas. Right. And a spirit crushing, uh, area, just like the panhandle. <laughs> it, it is not shooting the neutrino specifically at Antarctica, uh, but Antarctica is where you go to look for neutrinos. Yes. If you want to detect a neutrino, uh, because there's, uh, you know, aside from, uh, politics between penguins, 
uh, there's not much there to interfere with your reception of a, of a neutrino. So, and, and we should point out for people who are fans, Texas is literally burning off the shoulder of Orion. So get, get your, um, uh, Blade Runner references in early. That's what I yeah. say. Uh, so down at Antarctica, they have, they have a, a neutrino detection, uh, machine called Ice Cube and, <laughs> and like a game. It, it, product- it mostly, it, it mostly says, uh, the kids are calling it neutrinoing. And then it scares people. Well, actually, that's your ice tea. Uh, that's the ice tea. Oh, for the ice yeah. cube one. What does the ice cube one do? He starts out uh, with a gangster rap career and then starts doing uh, family comedies. Family comedies. Yeah. And, and what's more family and comedic than neutrino yeah, so, research? Yeah, so, so the ice cube uh, keeps saying, are we there yet? Are and we there then yet? finally, uh, it was there because in September uh, 2017, it detected a burst of neutrinos uh, exactly as... Uh, Scientists wanted it to do. And so, uh, the, the neutrino is a, a difficult to measure mysterious particle that, uh, penetrates everything. Uh, it might even be your, your, your otic force, which we talked about in a previous episode or two. And, uh, it, uh, it penetrates through the galaxy. There's neutrinos, Ken, going through you and me and the, uh, the listeners, even as we speak, but they're not so easy to detect because there's all sorts of other things going on around us. And so they are emitted by a type of black hole called a quasar, and a type of quasar, uh, Texas is, is called a blazar, uh, which is, I guess, because it's blazing neutrinos at us, and we just happen to be... And I just want to point out here that if the astrophysicists are all defensive that they gave Texas a dumb name, <laughs> I point out that other astrophysicists came up with the word blazar, so they <laughs> just weren't even trying. Right. Well, I think they were drawing their comic book character, Blazar. Exactly. <laughs> and just transferred the, the name. And apparently, uh, speaking of comic book creators, Texas does not seem to create the neutrinos. It just seems to accelerate them toward us. So it, it's basically a giant hadron collider in the sky. And we just happen to be positioned, uh, at least... Uh, and they went back and, and found some other blasts of neutrinos earlier that they think Texas shot at us. Um, and, but at any rate, uh, this is an exciting discovery, uh, for, uh, people who are excited by this sort of thing because it's actually the first proven source of cosmic rays. So for the first time, uh, scientists can say, we know where some cosmic rays come from. They come from Texas. And, right. uh, as we all know, cosmic rays, that's how the Fantastic Four got their powers. So, uh, the question, uh, before us then is Texas, obviously, it's right in the question. Uh, is it might even be an instance of begging the question is is a malign entity it's not just any regular old black hole because we know Azathoth is a black hole therefore all black holes are evil uh, so Ken why would an evil entity be blasting uh, neutrinos at us I mean I should begin uh, by fun ruining the uh, Lovecraftian half of this by saying that just because Azathoth is a black hole at the center of our galaxy does not mean he's not the black hole at the center of all galaxies. Azathoth is bigger than one galaxy, people. Let's not, let's not reduce Azathoth to just the one thing. Uh, so Azathoth could be the center of all cosmic rays and all neutrinos, and it's that energetic shout at itself that is, uh, why it is a mad god, because so much of the, uh, back and forth is itself shooting at itself. It's a zillion personalities. Each, each galaxy is a facet of Azathoth, all of them howling neutrinos into the void, uh, out there. But that said, if our galaxy is Azathoth and Texas is Texathoth, uh, why is, uh, Texathoth mad at us specifically? And I think the answer is because we're where Cthulhu lives. Uh, we know that Cthulhu's actually big. He's not just locally big because right. he was on a whole other star and he came and, and, uh, and lived here. So I think that if you're looking for genuinely cosmic forces that Texathoth would notice, I, I think it is, is basically because of Cthulhu and, uh, that, this cosmic radiation is either acting to suppress Cthulhu in the sort of Elder Gods Derlethian version of things, or, uh, Texas is trying to wake him up. Uh, either to mess with, uh, this galaxy by unleashing Cthulhu on it, or just as part of the generalized, uh, career of entropy that Texathoth, like all the Athoths, um, uh, uh, engages in. That, that this is part of the destruction of the universe, and Cthulhu embodying that has to be awakened by something, and why not neutrinos? Right. And if we, uh, posit that there, there are separate thoughts, there's Aza and Texa, that, uh, it may be that, uh, one of them is beaming 
keep Cthulhu where he is, uh, Rays, and the other is beaming, uh, let him out, uh, Rays. Exactly. And, uh, and so it could be, uh, up to you, the player. I, I guess this is the point of that, 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 uh, we have these great cosmic forces. Uh, we have, uh, neutrinos, which are, uh, nearly impossible to measure, let alone, uh, interactive in any way. Um, and so the question then, uh, before us is how do the, uh, how do the protagonists of her story or the, the player characters of the adventure, how do they somehow interact with all of this, this knowledge, this phenomenon, what's going on? So first of all, the dead obvious thing is, uh, oh, look, there's researchers in a f- frozen base. What can you do with that that has a known pedigree of horror? So, And by the way, you, if you look at a picture of the base, it looks like it was designed by Hollywood to be the frozen base where something awful happens. Right. It doesn't look like a real person would build a frozen base that way, which would just be a bunch of Quonset huts and domes, and, and it would just be boring and scattered out there. Now, this was someone who thought hard about, this is going to be full of monsters. Let's make it look good. Yes, yeah, so they've called it Ice Cube, one word, that, you know, if they're all going to get eaten by monsters, they want some cool branding. Exactly. So uh, that's the dead obvious thing is you do the, you know, the, the researchers at the isolated base horror uh, it could be that, uh, the neutrinos are, if you take them and, uh, look at their, their pattern, that you can render them as sound. Uh, and, uh, g- guess what? That's, th- that's the infernally, uh, infernal tootling of the, mm-hmm. uh, of the idiot flautists. And so, uh, it could be that, uh, simply the, uh, the sound realization of the neutrino pattern is the thing that the, uh, scientists at the base play and that uh, causes them all to uh, be uh, possessed by uh, these uh, malign spirits of, of the beyond. And, uh, you know, uh, one of them starts knocking off the other ones or starts uh, developing face tentacles or, uh, well, folks, you know the drill. Yeah. And I, I point out that the uh, the sort of the uh, sound as communication uh, that got, you know, sort of turned to a good numinous by close encounters of the third kind can easily be turned to evil numinous that the sound uh, of the neutrinos, the idiot flautists uh, tootling can have the same sorts of effects if, in the sense, first of all, it can draw badness to you. It can reveal the hideous truth to you. It can be the component that you have to be able to re-record in order to take that sound and go play it near Rolier to stop uh, Cthulhu from awakening. If you assume Texathoth is trying to repress Cthulhu or you use the sound as the inverse mask to produce the keep Cthulhu asleep sound. And suddenly you actually have some sensible, uh, useful data. And so that would, is what draws you. If you're a woke uh, Cthulhu team down to the South pole is, you know, that the inverse of these data are what you actually need, that that's the elder sign in, in musical form. And you can use it uh, a hundred household uses. I'm sure it's just a matter of, you have to get the actual data because of course, uh, the, the, the recording that's put up on the internet is degraded and lossy and terrible and you need all of the bandwidth you can possibly get. And that means going to the source computers and doing the research. And when you get there, guess what? Yes, exactly. Uh, see previous adventure. Right. Um, if you want to, uh, get this, uh, out of the isolated base and, uh, into the world, it can be as simple a matter as, uh, the, uh, uh guess what? The recordings are uh, uh, uploaded to the internet, or uh, perhaps if they're proprietary uh, data of the uh, the Ice Cube Corporation, which perhaps is uh, perhaps is shadowy and doesn't want this uh, letting out, but uh, that can give you your, sort of your restricted listening, where only certain scientists are allowed to hear it, and uh, you as the uh, player characters are trying to track down the last few recordings. You know, you've gotten everything off the the main servers, but there's still uh, someone has. Uh, has transferred it to a good old-fashioned analog tape, and you've got to track down the tape. And, of course, uh, uh, murders and face tentacles uh, ensue there as well. Yeah, the uh, the actual Ice Cube is funded by the National Science Foundation, which, of course, means that it could be a black program by Majestic or Delta Green right now that is trying to do exactly what I talked about, to reify a anti-Cthulhu or anti-Azathoth signal uh, and, and use it for good question mark and your player characters can stumble onto it and be pursued by shadowy men in black who are actually the nro delta hit squads from majestic who are trying to keep uh, the lid on it because 
you can't have civilians wandering around with Cthulhu MP3s on their on their phones. That would be a disaster. And then you're like, but we have a, a provable need for these MP3s. We should get an exception from the murder everybody rule, and that can set up some fun interaction with the shadowy figures who are pulling the strings of the NSF. And Ice Cube can basically be a MacGuffin that, that draws you in. And when the real story is your uh, dealings with Majestic and all the sort of enormous science that they've funded in a desperate attempt to at least let the core of the American national decision-making facilities survive the inevitable Cthuloid apocalypse. And you can uh, overturn that and have it rather than be that you're trying to track down and destroy the tapes. It could be that if this is an, the, the anti-Cthulhu emanation, it could be he's rising, he's coming up, he's ready to go. And so you need to uh, find the tape in order to be able to uh, put it on uh, on speakerphone on the boats that ring around uh, yep. uh, Raleigh when it's coming up and play that uh, at Cthulhu at, at top volume uh, in order to uh, force him back down behind the waves. And so the uh, thrust of the adventure then can be that you are trying to get the tape and so are Cthulhu cultists. And they're the ones who want to destroy uh, the, uh, the the true tape. They may have succeeded in uh, sort of messing with the data. And, uh, you know, everybody at Ice Cube thinks that the, uh, uh, you know, the, their neutrino auditory uh, visualization is the one. But they've, you know, you're searching for the, the uncorrupted one that will actually, you know, uh, force a big green back uh, under the waves again. And so uh, that can be your... A mechanism by which you uh, prevent the rising and keep him from uh, uh, stomping across the world. I should also point out that there are blazars in Taurus, uh, at least two that I found with a very, very uh, fragmentary Google search. So that means that if you're looking for a, a source for Carcosa, uh, for the This Is Normal Now uh, segment of the story, uh, that the, maybe that this is how the play is being transmitted, is by Blazar from Carcosa. And when you boil it all down, it turns out to sound very much like Bellepoque music. And uh, then you have to bring in a musicologist to say, oh, well, it's interesting about that. There was a brief um, uh, fad for this musical form that uh, uh, Charles Marie Vidor did a thing for organ and there's this and that. And you can pull in your Carcosa energies uh, just by moving your Blazar over. Yeah, it's it's the, la- the, the lost satie piano piece that uh, no one's been able to find. Exactly. Okay, well, I guess we've just about covered that. So before we get sucked through a black hole and into, I don't know, some other podcast entirely, let's get out of here. And then next week, we'll be back with this very same podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Aspagown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James St. Paul. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Stop this podcast from falling into a black hole alongside such Patreon backers as... Jake. Thomas Vallejo. Corey Welch. Louis R. Evans. And Mark Giles. Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Wear such shirts as not knowingly if you're a tulpa. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>